The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... What prompted the creation of the American Council of the Blind 50 years ago? But first, ACB Reports for October 2011 says welcome to cooler temperatures with this fall fashion overview for men from Lynn Cooper of the Mirrors Project. Welcome, listeners, to the look at men's fashion trends right off the runway and out of the editorial pages. We are not suggesting that our listeners buy all of these pieces. We are leveling the playing field by making this information available. We often don't see as much change season to season in menswear. And often what happens is menswear will follow women's trends. What we have, though, in fall 2011-12 are a few more new looks than ever before and ways to inexpensively incorporate these looks. And remember, it's always a good idea to use these looks sparingly. Remember the colors, the appropriateness, and also to, if at all possible, take our human mirrors with us. One of the big looks, Mike, is designer tweaked, and I say tweaked because they're often in different colors and different shapes, camouflage prints. This was huge because most designers were nodding to our troops. It's not that they sent out models wearing head-to-toe camouflage gear, but they did an homage, if you will. We've seen camouflage print on ties, messenger bags, T-shirts, sneakers, casual pants, watch bands. Once again, good place to do this is to go to the Army-Navy surplus store. And then, gentlemen, what we're also seeing a lot of is men's jewelry rings, necklaces, and bracelets. When you think men's jewelry, years and years ago, we would think of those hideous uh, pinky rings. I'm not referring to that. I'm talking about serious, precious metals, precious stones. Believe it or not, 20% of all fine jewelry sales in this down economy is coming from men, buying it for themselves, And it is another way to show status. You know, we usually do that with our clothing and our outward appearance. So this is a real trend that we're seeing a lot of. A lot of thick chain bracelets and what have you are very big, worn over watches and popping out of the shirt under a suit, once again, if they're high quality. Another look is thick tweed jackets. When I'm saying thick, I mean thick fabric tweed jackets. These are sport coats. They're not suits, although some were shown in this thick tweed. But they're worn over jeans, corduroys, khaki pants, more of a casual look, but a little dressier casual look. Another look that was big, Mike, are vintage-looking watches. Another great resource for these is the resale shop venue. They're also being done relatively inexpensively by just about every designer, and they are in alligator or snakeskin or faux skin, dark brown or black watch bands. They are not digital. These are old school with the hands going around. Then we have the narrow suits. And once again, we have to wear them based on our shapes, tapered blacks, narrow ties. Imagine Beatles 1960s. The pant is narrow, needless to say, no pleats in front. It does have a crease, and they are above or just at the ankle. Usually, for many, many, many years, in classic, you know, you're still going to see it in banking, where the men's suit pant cuts to the top or breaks, as they say, on the top of the shoe. Well, this is much more trendy, 
and it is actually at the ankle. So it's not even going to skim the shoe. And that's where you have an opportunity to make a statement with socks. Now, the difference is, this is what we're seeing this season, single-breasted usually would not have a peaked lapel. And what I mean is the lower half of the lapel from the chest button, if you take your hand and follow that all the way up on your shoulder, normally on a single-breasted suit, it would not go above the top half of the lapel. But this is a peaked lapel and usually found on double-breasted suits. We're also seeing on the runway, Mike, a lot of dark jeans and jean jackets, and this really hasn't changed. Sometimes we'll see a change in the dye, the color of the jeans, and what we're seeing is that it's remaining dark and narrow. And a little bit, for fun, casual, uh, they're being rolled at the ankle. A really big look is narrow corduroys, and they're being shown in colors. You don't have to go that far. You can get a pair in gray or tan or black, but they are jean-styled narrow corduroys. And what I mean by narrow is narrow whale, and that refers to how wide that little rib on the corduroy is. We're also seeing motorcycle jackets. Great thing to hit the uh, resale shops for. They are either in, oh my, what a surprise, black leather or in dark jean fabric, that dark indigo blue jean fabric. They're zippered authentically, and they're very snug. We're also seeing, Mike, plaid shirts. This is not the plaid shirt of our fathers, bless their hearts, where three people can get into that shirt. It is a narrow, tapered shirt, but in plaid. I've seen it on the runway where the plaid shirt would be worn with a contrasting tweed jacket and then an altogether differently patterned tie. That's a little bit adventurous, but uh, plaid is very big. And fun socks. Remember, we want them to go to our knees, at least mid-calf, so we don't have that goofy look of skin between our pant legs and the top of the sock when gentlemen sit. What we're seeing are large stripes, bright colors, argyles, a very classically handsome business suit with a pair of bright pink socks underneath. It's kind of a whimsical wink. But if you are going to, for a day, wear large stripes, bright colors, or argyles in your socks, they're great under jeans or khakis, a little bit best doing it casually. And argyle is back. That is that diamond pattern that's been big since probably the 30s or 40s. It's being done in vests sweaters, cardigans, V-neck pullovers, and crew-neck pullover sweaters. You can wear it under a jacket, just wear it over a shirt, roll up your sleeves, a tie, thinner ties are big, thinner knit ties are even bigger, and uh, that's kind of a fun look. Shoes are slip-ons, and the biggest new look is what's called a tuxedo loafer. It's a slip-on, And it's named a tuxedo loafer because for many, many years, and probably still, they are traditionally worn with tuxedos. They were originally done in velvet with a monogram on the front. But they are being done by designers, and they're being shown with suits for day or casual. But if one doesn't go that route, a lace-up Oxford and a penny loafer, an actual penny loafer, another really good shoe to get inexpensively. They're being made in all price points. Sunglasses, aviator styles remain big, but what I'm noticing is these aviator style sunglasses are with black frames. And hair. This season, 
we're not seeing big changes in hair, but what we are noticing on the runway and in editorial pages is that hair remains short on the sides, not closely cropped, but short on the sides and short sideburns, not exaggerated sideburns, clean and shaven face, so we're not seeing a lot of facial hair, and then the hair would be wavy on top, either just let uh, fall naturally or swept back. So gentlemen, there is a taste of Fall and Winter 2011. Visit Lynn at her website, lynncooper.us. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. In 1961, a committed group of individuals walked away from a turbulent meeting of the National Federation of the Blind in Kansas City and formed the American Council of the Blind. During the celebration of the 50th anniversary of ACB in July of this year, conference attendees heard firsthand from people who were there and from others who in some way were connected to the founding of the organization. The panel was introduced by ACB First Vice President, Kim Charlson. One of the great opportunities when we're looking at our past is to actually hear some stories from people who were there or grew up with the stories of the American Council of the Blind in its early years. We will hear from first MJ Schmidt, who was there, followed by Phyllis Burson, who was married to Brad Burson, a charter member, and Michael Byington, who grew up at the knee of ACB. Welcome, MJ, Phyllis, and Michael. The very first thing I want to tell you people is that I'm no heroine. I was a young person. I came into NFB in May of 1957. One thing NFB did at least know how to do, and I guess still does, is organize people. What really happens is the people they talk to point them to other people, and that's where they find their leadership people right away, and it really does seem to work. I never claimed to be a heroine, but I was there for all four years, and I saw deplorable things. The whole thing could have ended if Dr. Tenbrook had relinquished his presidency after only 20 years. And the people, they were mesmerized. They were used to being directed in their voting habits. And, of course, I was at an age that that didn't suit me at all. My husband, Don, and I were there for about an hour, and I turned to him and I said, I don't think we belong here. And he said, you want to go look for the McDaniel Boring faction? I said, I sure do. And right away, Drew had said, you're a spy. I said, I'm a what? And he said, you're a spy. I said, I beg your pardon. And he said, well, you're a friend of George Card's. And I said, well, I can't help who my friends are. I said, I don't like what I've seen so far, and I don't want to see any more of it. But I was one of the younger people. Um, Dean Sumner and Bob O'Shaughnessy were the real heroes. Bob complained so much about everything that was going on that he got Illinois censured. And then they came back to the next convention, but they were censured so they couldn't vote. And we needed their votes. It wouldn't have mattered much, I don't think. And um, Dean Sumner had the nerve to run against Dr. Tenbrook for president. I think I was okay until they did one of their famous afternoon tours. I was playing poker with the Illinois delegation. And Amal Art was the NFB treasurer at the time. 
and his kid came in crying because he could no longer play with Ruthie McDaniel. And I said, when they take it to the kid level, that is really tough. That really made me firm in my commitment. I never for one day have been sorry that I left the National Floundering Blind. I've been calling them that for years, and I said, I have to do it on ACB radio. I think Tenbrook and Jernigan gave us about five years, probably. And uh, here we are, 50 years later, strong and democratic and unable to work with them much because they're top-down. It's yes, sir, no, sir, anything you say, sir. And that doesn't work here. We're much too much the other way. We fight and argue on the Internet. We're just democratic people, and we believe everybody has a right to their opinion. And I hope we always will. Part of the reason it started was when they fired E.B. Archibald, and that got a lot of people up in arms, and they started complaining and seeing some of the inequities that were going on. And in 1959, we had a thing called the Day of Decision, and after that, they started targeting people and affiliates, and some smart ones just took their greeting card money and shut up, but then there were those who got thrown out, and by the time there was a vote in um, Kansas City. We had six states that couldn't vote because they hadn't been thrown out, but they had been disenfranchised for a period of time or something. It was a terrible time. You just saw awful things happen, and people got some pretty bad treatment on the floor. We really didn't want to leave the Federation. I have to be honest about that. We wanted to democratize it. We wanted to make it belong to us instead of the power structure at the top. But they're as top-down as we're bottom-up, so there's just no way we could have done it, but we were too stupid to know that. I guess that's kind of it in a nutshell. It bothered me when it went down to the kids, and it bothered me when certain people weren't given the floor. And, and then they had this guy, Jim Valiant, and I think he came from Iowa. I think Ken Jernigan dug him up somewhere. He would position himself outside of the door where we were strategizing at night, and then he'd take tales back to the administration. Well, we weren't a very polite bunch, and everybody's trying to talk over everybody else, so I can't imagine what kind of scenarios he got but I'm sure he didn't get much that was really happening. And, of course, we couldn't get anything put into the monitor, so we had to dig down in our pockets and come up with a Braille-free press, and we did. It was a terrible time, but if it led us to have an ACB that's here 50 years later, maybe it was the best thing that ever happened to the blindness community. Who knows? I happen to think it was, but I was so integrally involved that I can't give them much of a pass. Thank you. Hello, I'm Phyllis Burson. First, let me clarify that I was not part of this. I was in college when all this was going on, and I was not married to Brad till 1976 when ACB had already been in existence for 15 years. But I'm very happy to speak here because the ACB was very important to him. He spent a lot of years after the formation of ACB working 
legislatively coming to Washington to talk with legislators to try to get the Rehab Act passed. I believe he wrote part of it. And he organized a couple of ACB conventions, was the first vice president, etc. So what I'm telling you, I've heard from Brad and from other people. And when Brad first came into NFB, he was very excited. He was young. He was a nuclear physicist. And he had been told during college that he couldn't do physics because of being blind. So he actually didn't major in physics, but in law. Then afterwards, he realized that his first love was really physics, so we went ahead and did it anyway. But it was very important to him that blind people should be able to do whatever kind of work they wanted to. So one of the things he did when he was in the NFB was to propose a project about blind employment, which at first Jacobus Tendrook was very much for, but then as time went on, because Brad was one of the revolters, he lost the support for that, And Brad was very interested in the Federation because he was interested in organizations for the blind. So he was really disappointed when things started to change within the organization. What happened was that there was this gradual sort of tightening of control. There were times when they didn't invite certain board members if they didn't like what they were going to say. They just wouldn't invite them to the board meetings so they wouldn't find out about them. And then people found out a year afterward that Tenbrook had put some kind of addition on his house from NFB money without getting approval. So there was just a lot of financial mingling between what was supposed to be NFB treasury and what was personal money. And then, as MJ said, everyone started getting in trouble, everyone who spoke out, which included Brad and many, many other people. And so they started throwing out affiliates and telling them that they couldn't get back in unless they would throw out certain people. I think Brad realized fairly early on that this was not going to change. So he, at some point, when everyone was getting thrown out, he and Bob O'Shaughnessy and some other people initiated Illinois withdrawing themselves from the Federation. And apparently the idea was that you throw out all these affiliates and then you will just take back all the people who will agree with you. And what Brad noticed was he said he used to go into Tenbrook's suite at the conventions and talk with him, and then all of a sudden you couldn't get in. The door was closed, and Ken Jernigan was standing at the door, and you had to tell him what you wanted to talk to Tenbrook about, And then you were only accepted if he liked what you were going to say. And they eventually passed a rule that anybody who attacked, meaning criticized, any of the officers would get thrown out of the organization. Obviously, the whole thing became untenable. And as MJ was saying, another thing that was upsetting to Brad was that now people were forbidden to let their children play with the children of the people who were insurgents and so forth. So it became very difficult. Just one of the other aspects that I'd like to share about Brad is that he enjoyed mentoring young people. The first time that I ever met Brad, 
I believe that he promoted me because I got to be some sort of a delegate to the Illinois Council when I was very young, just sort of out of college. And I was sitting there watching Brad run around lobbying, you know, doing everything. He was very active, and I was trying to figure out what on earth was going on. I've heard people ask Brad what he thought was the most important thing to do with your life, and he said, agitate, agitate, agitate. (laughs) By which he meant, spend your life working on things that will better the lives of everyone. Thank you very much. Well, I want to thank ACB for allowing me, the son of Bonnie Byington and Jack Byington, who were charter members of ACB, to sit here with these two distinguished people who lived so much of this history. More even than Phyllis, I lived it vicariously because I was six years old going on seven in 1961 when ACB was created. I do have the good fortune, however, of a very vivid memory of my very verbal and articulate parents talking about what was going on. I also, through many years of ACB, have very vivid memories of conversations I had with Reese Robron, who originated from Kansas and who gave me my first committee assignments in the state affiliate. Reese was definitely a primary mentor. But there was also this fellow named Brad Burson at the national conventions who, even when I was in my early teens, would really sit down and listen to my thoughts and ask good questions and make me think about issues of governance and issues of how organizations of the blind and visually impaired should run and operate. I am extremely grateful to all of those folks. I will say that I think I'm one of two ACB brats that have continued to have some role in working with the organization nationally. The other one is Carla Reshable. Now, as far as my memories, I can tell you that my mother, Bonnie Byington, was very proud to be one of those other folks that got thrown out with Kansas being told that it could not be readmitted unless it threw out Bonnie Byington. There were seven conditions, and there were originally seven states that were eliminated. Kansas, along with Illinois, and I don't remember all seven, but they were two of the first states of the seven that were thrown out because of certain rabble-rousers like M.J. Schmidt and Bonnie Byington. My father was low vision as a child and had received some of his education at the Kansas State School for the Blind. However, he had a very unusual return of vision when he got into his late teens, and although still somewhat low vision, functioned probably more as sighted than blind as an adult. This gave him a special ability to audio describe with great color things he saw that were going on. And when I think of the image of the beginning of ACB, it's probably a different image than many of you have. He said that at the 1961 convention, they went by a meeting room where a strategy session was supposed to be held. And it was one of these large suites in the Muehlbach Hotel that did have a bed in the corner so it could be used as a sleeping room, but it was really quite a large suite. 
And over kneeling down in the corner was a uh, rather rotund gentleman who was attempting to hide a very large reel-to-reel webcore tape recorder under the bed. The bedspreads at the Mulebach at that time had ball fringes. And the ball fringes had gotten hopelessly entangled in the recording heads <laughs> of the webcore tape recorder, and it was stuck halfway under the bed. The gentleman crawled halfway under the bed to try to get it out, and then he got stuck too. My father said he never knew who he was, but whichever side of the issues he was on, he hoped he was grateful that my father went in and pulled him out. Now, that's a humorous take on a very serious thing which happened. Because I think it's important to remember that ACB was created not because of incredible disagreements about philosophies of blindness or where blindness as a minority demanding civil rights and equal treatment in this country should go. Those disagreements hadn't been allowed to flower because there was no right to disagreement. The thing that split the two organizations and caused there to be two organizations was not disagreement on the issues. It was disagreement about governance and who should decide the issues and the positions taken. And the truth and the efficacy of the differences in the two organizations and why there still continues to need to be those two organizations, or at least us, I'm not sure about the need for them, But the reason that all of the disagreements between the two organizations have occurred over the years is because ACB, as MJ put it, operates bottom up. I have seen so many times over my years as an active person in ACB, a couple of people get up on the convention floor and completely change the position of this organization on an issue because they convinced the people who were there that they were right And ACB has to listen to its membership. That continues to not be something which is available in the organization. And that is the reason that so many of their positions now differ from ours as to where blindness and low vision, which they don't recognize, by the way, should go. I am so proud to be a part of an organization where people can disagree with me so adamantly and violently. And I say violently in a sense that, no, I have never been physically attacked by anyone in this organization. We just believe in our views very much. So in closing, I want to say that the memories are absolutely vivid. My memories are coming through the organization and having my first committee assignments in ACB at a very young age. There was a gentleman who was much my senior. He was four years older, and I looked up to him a great deal, named John Scott Marshall, who had a lot to do with the development of this organization just a little bit later. John Scott Marshall and I laid the groundwork and wrote the first resolution that encouraged ACB to start a student's organization. We were not the ones who ultimately put that organization together. We just had the kernel of the initial idea that got the board of directors thinking about it. So I'm pleased to be enough of an old geezer to be on the panel about the past of ACB. But I'm probably even more pleased 
to have a role in the past at helping create the future. Thank you. This presentation may be heard in its entirety on the convention page at acb.org. Learn more about the history of the American Council of the Blind by reading People of Vision. This historic reference is available on loan from the National Library Service. It can also be purchased from the American Council of the Blind, along with Volume 1 of an Oral History Project. Contact the ACB National Office for details. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.